Hey there, welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can live lives that unleash just a little bit more courage so that we can love the hell out of this world. And boy, does it need a little bit of love right now. I'm one of your hosts, Reverend Sean, and today on the podcast, we're kicking off our Act of Hope series, where we're exploring the work of systems theorist, Buddhist, deep ecologist, Joanna Macy, and how we can move from hope as a feeling to hope as an action or direction that we move in this world because it can be too easy to feel hopeless which often makes us step away from the challenges at hand which are manifold um, which and we need to step deeper into them but how do we can we do that taking care of our heart and our whole selves so that is what this series is all about and today we are diving into that with a message from reverend gretchen which is an Easter message because it is Easter time. And so we're going to dive into not the story of the resurrection per se, but what happened after. And so I'm going to begin by retelling part of the scripture about what happened after Jesus um, in the story, the tomb was found to be empty. And then you're going to hear from Reverend Gretchen. So usually at this time, we might tell the story of Easter that's derived from the scriptures. But today we're going to do something a little different, which maybe you might expect coming to a Unitarian church on Easter, which is we're not going to tell the story of this crucifixion and resurrection. We're going to tell the story of what happened afterwards. So this is the story that is accounted to us in the gospel according to Luke in chapter 24, verses 12 to 32. After Jesus' death and the empty tomb was discovered, two of the disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. They were trying to figure out what had just happened. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. They are literally having their entire world turned upside down. The person that they loved most deeply, that they were committed with their whole lives to follow, to enact his vision of this world turned upside down where the last would be first and the first would be last. All of that seems to have come to an end when he is killed. And they are walking from Jerusalem, the place where this horror has happened, to Emmaus to try to make sense of this together. And as they're walking, trying to figure out what exactly this means, a stranger joins them. Now, when we're reading the scripture, we're told that the stranger is Jesus, but they don't know that. In fact, these two disciples, even as the stranger comes up and starts to talk to them, they do not recognize him. The scripture says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And the stranger inquired, like, what are you talking about? Right? Imagine they're like deep in conversation, trying to make sense of everything. And they tell him about what had happened, about what they had been through, and He joins in the conversation. Now, after they reach their destination in Emmaus, the disciples invite this stranger to stay with them for dinner. They sit down, they prepare their food, and the stranger took the bread that they were going to eat, blessed it, as was the custom at the time, nothing out of the ordinary there, broke it and gave it to them. That same, of course, that Jesus did just few days before in that last supper, taking bread, blessing it and breaking it so ordinary and yet so special 
For it was in that moment for when they received the bread that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus, this person they loved, they recognized Jesus for who he was. And of course, after they recognize him, what happens? He vanishes. And they immediately return to Jerusalem to tell all of the disciples what happened. My best friend from high school, just a few years back, um, she uh, reached out to me last week. She and I have stayed in touch loosely over the years. You know, Facebook kind of stay in touch, but not in any consistent way. She was in our hometown uh, for a few days, cleaning out from her parents, cleaning out her parents' home after her father's recent death. And she'd come across a bunch of photos of us from our high school days. And then she sent me the photos. So I recognized immediately the three decades ago moments in these photos. That's a sleepover at her house, and that was junior prom. And I also recognized my friend there, frozen in time as her 16-year-old self. What I struggled to recognize in the photos, maybe you do too, is me. That person is the same person here and now, me. Not just because of the physical changes, there's a few, uh, but more the hidden ways that molecules rearrange, not just literally, but metaphorically, as life accumulates and also strips away our sense of who we are and who we are meant to be, something new taking shape in us over and over again. I mean those inevitable hard-won lessons and gifts of grace. I mean the being loved and the loving. I mean the terrible losses and betrayals. I mean the miracles and the infinite in-betweens. Life changes you, makes you inevitably unrecognizable in one way or another over time. It's why people who are married for a long span of time talk about actually having multiple marriages because we have to re-meet each other learn to recognize each other as both the one we loved before and also someone we hope we will love still. Those two people who walk the road to Emmaus, Cleophas and it was likely his wife, Mary. These were some of Jesus's closest friends. They, they definitely, they loved each other. And still, they could not recognize this person who's walking beside them. It's a seven-mile trek, by the way. Seven miles they walked with him, talking to him, and they could not recognize him. Their beloved teacher, the person they most longed to be seeing, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And in a lot of ways, Jesus was not the same person he was before, right? I mean, he'd been through something. Something that ended at resurrection? Whatever the literal truth of the empty tomb, the story we hear today offers us a way to understand an experience of transformation that is the core story of life. First, the loss of ourselves as we have been, the loss of everything we've ever known, 
that Good Friday that reminds us that no new beginning arrives without first an ending. And then the Easter Sunday and the empty tomb that says the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. Morning comes and the light shines again and there is Jesus walking beside his friends, both the same and also totally changed. It's not the first time, actually, that people closest to Jesus struggle to recognize him. It happens also at the tomb when Mary Magdalene, also someone who loved him, sits in her grief. Her tears are falling and Jesus appears to her. She thinks he's the gardener. It also happens over and over again in, in Jesus's life that even his closest friends struggle to recognize him. They're like, are you a prophet? Are you a teacher, a healer? Some said the son of God, which is actually a term that ancient political figures used to justify their own authority. They would say, I am the son of God. So by saying that, they were saying there's some authority here you might have politically. Maybe he was a political leader, the long-awaited Messiah. No one really knew for sure the whole of his life and even into his death, there was this struggle for recognition continued. Now, students of theater and classical literature might notice the literary trope at work in this repeated struggle for recognition. Aristotle called it the anagnoresis, literally the recognition scene. Now, generally, the anagnoresis is that moment in the story when people recognize someone who was previously unrecognizable, including sometimes themselves. According to Aristotle, the recognition scene is the moment when someone experiences a change from ignorance to knowledge. And it is usually accompanied by a change in fortune, what Aristotle called the peripatia, or just the reversal. Life that seemed to be going along and with some momentum in one direction after the recognition scene instead moves in the opposite direction. The recognition scene changes everything in the same way that being seen truly and seeing another in their truth changes everything. Last Friday, in honor of Trans Day of Visibility, a small group of trans folks gathered in Old Town Square and laid down on the ground. Some of them portraying acts of potential violence towards them. I understood immediately what they were doing. Die-ins are a long tradition in queer and other marginalized and activist communities, starting in the 1960s with black activists and then into the 80s with the ACT UP movement during the AIDS crisis. Staging a die-in is a way of literally saying, we are dying. And even more, it's a way of saying, let us live. 
Trans Day of Visibility started in 2009. It was a companion, supposed to be a companion to the Trans Day of Remembrance, which is celebrated in November each year. It started 20 years earlier as a way to honor and remember all the trans people who have died as a result of anti-trans violence in the prior year. So Trans Day of Remembrance is a way to focus on loss and grief and remembrance, but Trans Day of Visibility is a day to focus on joy. The celebration of trans people in their journey to be seen fully, to be recognized as people, whole and living, alive, learning and growing, just like all other people. Except this year, at least in our local gathering, trans joy was not enough for our trans day of visibility. Which I think makes sense. Just this year, just this year, 45 states, like basically almost all the states, 45 states have proposed anti-trans legislation, with 12 of those succeeding. 27 states still have bills pending. These laws range from bans on drag to limitations on health care, sports participation, school curriculum, bathroom use, whatever the details, the sum total feels like a systematic effort to create a future where there are no trans. Especially when you set these laws alongside the statistic from the Poudre School District that shows that queer and non-binary and trans kids are three times as likely as the average student to have attempted suicide in the last year. As likely especially when you set this statistic alongside the fact that the rates of suicide for trans and non-binary kids go down by 40% just by being able to experience environments that are affirming of their gender identity. 40%. We are dying. Let us live. Now, I didn't expect universally warm reception to the plea of the dying, of course. There wouldn't be bills if there wasn't real fear and resistance. But still, I was not prepared for the comments. You know, the comments on the photos in the Coloradan. With just a few exceptions, a few, like two exceptions. The reactions, all of them were dehumanizing, demeaning, and dismissive. Many connected the protesters in Old Town with the shooter in Nashville, who in case you didn't hear, was trans. It would say, well, your people are the ones who cause death. Our minds are primed to see the world in terms of us and them, Valerie Cower writes. We can't help it. The moment we look upon another's face, our minds discern in an instant whether they are one of us part of our family and community, or one of them. This happens before conscious thought. Our bodies release hormones that prime us to trust and listen to those we see as part of us and to fear and resent them. It's easier for us to feel empathy and compassion for one of us, much harder for one of them. When one of us does something bad, we tend to attribute it to circumstance. But when one of them, we attribute it to essence. Oh, that's just how they are. 
We tend to think of us as complex, multidimensional. We tend to think of them as simple and one-dimensional. We are much more likely to intervene when we see a victim of violence as a part of us, and we tend to stand by when people we see as them are harmed. In other words, who we see as one of us determines who we let inside our circle of care and concern. This too common human impulse has been playing out this past week at the Tennessee State House. In the days since the shooting in Nashville, more than a thousand protesters, many of them young people and their parents, have been rallying around the Capitol. And one day last week, many made their way through the security screening and into the rotunda to an area set aside for public viewing of the legislative session. Once there, three House representatives led the protesters in a chant from the House floor. The chants called for gun reform, while the young protesters held signs saying things like, drag shows do not kill, guns do, which is a reference to the bill signed into law last month in Tennessee banning all drag performance. Although it was the next sign that really got to me. It's like a, looked like a middle schooler to me. He was holding a sign that said, am I next? We are dying. Let us live. On Friday, the representatives who helped to lead those protesters' chants, Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, Gloria Johnson, were each voted on for expulsion for breaking house decorum as in they were to be removed from the seats that they were elected into. For Representatives Jones and Pearson, both black men, that vote was successful. They have been removed. Representative Johnson, a white woman, however, was not expelled. When she later was asked why she thought she didn't receive the same treatment, despite the fact that she'd done exactly what her colleagues had done, Johnson said, well, I think it's pretty clear. I am a 60-year-old white woman and they are two young black men. The expulsion is certainly a move against democracy in its extreme response to a break in decorum grounded in civil protest. But even more disturbingly, the expulsion represents an incapacity to recognize Jones and Pearson as an us rather than a them in all the ways Valerie Cower describes. It is the failure to recognize Jones and Pearson as equally worthy of being on that legislative floor in the first place. And it is a failure that white people in this country have been practicing towards black people for the whole of our history, as it is only through a failure of recognition of our common humanity that slavery becomes possible or that lynching becomes common, which Coincidentally, a few weeks ago, a member of the Tennessee House made a proposal to reinstate. Valerie Kaur spent her childhood being seen as them, as an Indian American raised in the Sikh faith in the farmlands of Central California. Kaur writes about constant bullying from her white conservative Christian classmates. 
And alongside these experiences, she learned also the origin story of her own faith. As she tells it, five centuries ago on the Indian subcontinent, there lived a young man named Nanak. He was deeply troubled by the violence around him, Hindus and Muslims that were in turmoil. So one day Nanak disappeared on the bank of the river for three days. People thought he was dead, drowned, but Nanak emerged on the third day with a vision of oneness. The oneness of humanity and of the world this vision threw Nanak into a state of ecstatic wonder. He was in love, like literally in the experience of love. And that experience of love made him see with new eyes. Everyone around him was a part of him that he did not yet see. I see no stranger, Guru Nanak said. I see no enemy. This too, is a recognition scene. And recognition changes everything. The struggle for recognition, it's at the heart of the American experiment. And it's at the heart of our Unitarian Universalist faith. Whether we are asking, can two walk together lest they be agreed? That's a quote from the prophet Amos. And it's what's often quoted when we talk about our covenantal pluralist faith. Can two walk together lest they be agreed? Or we're claiming e pluribus unum, as in the traditional model, motto of the United States, the question of our capacity to see, to recognize every other person as us, rather than splitting people up into us and them, is both our national inheritance and it is the central promise of our faith. In both cases, we have more often failed to recognize our common humanity than we have played the recognition scene, especially when it comes to racial and cultural differences. As our political and generational divides have in recent years turned more and more to tribalism, and as the pandemic has atrophied our capacity to talk to people outside the, our smallest social circles. That is, as we are experiencing both an intense need for community and for belonging, alongside a real ambivalence about the realities of dealing with other people. We need this central promise and practice of our faith to deliver now more than ever. We need the declaration that all are worthy of love. All, all are worthy of love. And we need the declaration that we are all irreversibly, undeniably, like it or not, bound up together. We need these declarations of our faith. And even more, we need these declarations to translate into spiritual disciplines. Disciplines we practice every day with everyone, everyone even with those who fail to offer us the same recognition in return. Now, I describe this practice, in case it's not obvious, I describe it as a discipline for two reasons. First, because it's not going to be easy, right? It requires intention. It requires a commitment to overcoming that preconscious impulse 
and widening the circle of who we see as a part of us before fear makes us unable to recognize each other. And second, I use the word discipline because of its connections to the word disciple, which as I said last week, just really means learner. Because the practice of recognizing another as a connected part of you, equally worthy of love, requires a constant learning, a constant willingness to learn, a constant curiosity, or what Valerie Cower describes as a constant wonder. As she writes, who we wonder about determines whose stories we hear and whose joy and pain we share, those we grieve with, those we sit with and weep with are ultimately those we organize with and advocate for. Wonder is to look upon the face of anyone and choose to say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. Cower describes her own discipline of wonder as a daily practice of seeing each person she encounters on the street or on the screen, and I think that latter might be harder, each person that she encounters and saying to herself, sister, brother, sibling. She says, I start to wonder about each of them as a person. And when I do this, I am retraining my mind to see more and more kinds of people as a part of an us rather than them. I say in my mind, you are a part of me I do not yet know. And I practice orienting to the world with wonder, preparing myself for the possibility of connection. Jesus and his friends walked the whole way to Emmaus. They walked the whole way and his friends do not recognize him. It is only when they finally sit down to dinner together and Jesus breaks the bread and blesses it. And in that, they see his humanity and they recognize him. This final act of simply eating together with friends. They know him as he was and they know him also changed, transformed by a love that endures everything, even death. The momentum of our country and our world seems on a sure track in one direction. A direction of division and derision, extraction and empire, but it is not too late for us to play the recognition scene, to be resolute in our discipline of seeing no stranger of beholding only kin. In this active discipline lies our hope for peripatia, for reversal, the longed for tidal wave of justice that Seamus Haney writes about, that is the great sea change on the far side of revenge. In the story of resurrection, let us find the hope of, res of recognition. That is the promise of meeting each other, seeing each other as we are truly held and called all of us, all of us held by the enduring and transforming power of love. May it be so and amen. So here is the hope that we might each take up the discipline that each person you meet today, whether in person 
or even through the screen, even in the comments section, to say in your mind, sibling, to every person, you are a part of me that I have not yet met, to recognize each other as kin in the great connecting and transforming power of love. Our worship has ended. Our service just begins. Go in peace and in love. Amen. So thanks for listening. It's always great to know you're out there. We love hearing from you. Please don't hesitate to be in touch at deeperpod at foothillsu.org. Thank you to everyone who makes what we do possible. It wouldn't be possible without all of the financial support that you and others give, and we love hearing from you. So please, if you aren't financially supporting us, we'd love for you to do that. It allows us to continue to do this without stress and as a gift to the world. Um, But if that's not possible, that's fine. We appreciate you being a part of our community just by listening. Well, until next time.